I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. And welcome to the History of Islam podcast, episode 2, Pre-Islamic Arabia. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to another installment of the History of Islam podcast. This episode is part 2 of our introduction on Pre-Islamic Arabia. And last episode, we ended with the story of the failure of the Roman expedition to Arabia Felix, showing us how vital and how important knowledge of the land and the skill of desert navigation that the nomads possessed was in the Arabian Peninsula. I also mentioned that the Arab nomads were pastoral, relying on their animals, namely sheep, goats and camels, to survive. Of these animals, the camel was undoubtedly king. And while I feel pressed to move on in order to start the history of Islam itself and Muhammad's life, it will be unjust to mention the camel, a true cornerstone of Arabian society and life, only in passing. The Arabian camel, the ship of the desert. Its design is in every way perfectly suited to its environment. The camel's eyes have a large overhanging upper eyelid that acts like a parasol protecting them from the direct rays of the sun. On these eyelids are heavy, long eyelashes, protecting the eyes from sand. And if sand does still somehow manage to find a way to lodge itself in the camel's eye, the camel has a third transparent eyelid to dislodge it. The camel's long neck gives it a wide range of vision, allowing it to look around freely for food and water. This same neck gives the camel the necessary range, allowing it to stoop down and drink, and enabling it to get to the desert shrubs and vegetation no matter what nook or cranny they are in. The rough texture of the camel's mouth then lets it eat these hard, tough and thorny plants of the desert that other animals may not be able to eat. On its chest and joints, the camel has a tough, callus-like leathery pad that are almost like cushions, so that when it is tired and needs to sit down and rest, it won't be burnt by the sand. And if any of you have been to a beach on a hot day, then you know how hot the sand can get. And something as trivial as this is actually so important, especially when you realise that in the deserts of Arabia, the temperature of the sand can reach up to 80 degrees Celsius. That's about 180 degrees Fahrenheit, which is enough to slow cook a cut of meat. So without those pads at the points of contact between the camel and the sand, 
the poor creatures wouldn't be able to sit down and rest without being literally cooked alive. And there are so many small things that you could easily pay no mind to, which in reality are crucial, crucial characteristics that contribute significantly to the camel's perfect adaptation to its surroundings. The camel has no trouble walking on loose sand. Unlike a horse, for example, the camel doesn't walk on its hooves. It walks on a broad pad that connects its two long toes. And this cushion-like pad spreads when the camel places its foot on the ground, preventing it from sinking in the sand. Even the nostrils of the camel are adapted in one way for desert life. The camel's nostrils are like valves that can be opened and closed. So if there's a sandstorm whipping up and sand is going up the nose of the camel, stopping it from breathing properly, then the camel can open and close its nostrils at will. The kidneys and intestines of the camel are so efficient at absorbing water that its feces are so dry that they can immediately be used to fuel fires. And in a land where trees are too valuable to be cut down and burnt, you can only imagine how valuable this is. And if you're wondering why they would need to light fires anyway, well, even if you exclude things like food preparation and industry, temperatures in the desert at night can reach freezing level. However, while these features are absolutely fascinating in their own right, the two abilities that set apart the camel from any other animal are firstly and arguably the most important is the camel's ability to survive for long periods without water and secondly the camel's strength. We'll start with the first one. With absolutely no water the camel is known to go for five to seven days up to a week and if leafy plants are available for it to eat it can go without water for several weeks enabling it to venture further and deeper into the desert where no other creature be it man or beast can on top of this camels can drink about a hundred liters that's 30 us gallons of water in under 15 minutes allowing them to recover incredibly quickly as well so you can only imagine how short the pit stops have to be if the camel can drink a hundred liters in less than 15 minutes as for the second uh, aspect that we mentioned its strength its strength is what allowed the camel to truly become a ship of the desert, transporting goods and people throughout Arabia and beyond. And a strong camel is known to bear a weight of up to a thousand pounds. That's about 450 kilos. Everything obtained from the camel was of value to the Arabs, literally everything. When it is living, its feces are used for fuel, its milk, was a staple food for the Arabs, much more nutritious than cow's milk, high in potassium, iron and vitamin C, which by the way is probably why the average Bedouin didn't suffer from scurvy, as it was absolutely normal and in fact common for Arabs, particularly Bedouins, to go for prolonged periods consuming nothing but camel's milk and the occasional date here and there. In fact, they barely drank water. The water was less for their animals who couldn't drink anything else and the nomads would just sustain themselves on their animals' milk, sheep or goats or camels, but mainly camels and goats. The camel's hair was excellent for lots of essentials. For example, the tents that they lived in and the fabrics that they wore. 
The camel's strength, as we mentioned, is particularly important. The difference between a camel and a goat is that a camel is strong enough for you to ride on. And this was very helpful because coupled with the camel's ability to go without water for a long time, this allowed for Arabs to travel for further distances and uh, open them up to international trade. The strength also allowed them to be used for labor, so they can haul goods, they can haul people, uh, they can drag carts. The possibilities are endless with, a, with a, uh, an animal as strong as a camel, whereas something like a goat, which is useful to an extent because of its meat and its milk and other stuff, it's not strong enough to be used for labor or to carry a human being. And while the dog is known as man's best friend in life, the camel was the Arab's best friend in life and death. Because even when it had perished, even when it was no longer alive, the camel was still very important and very useful to the Arab. When slaughtered, the camel's meat was a delicacy and is said to taste not much different than a chewy bit of beef. Its skin can be fashioned into highly sought after leather and even its bones weren't allowed to decay. And just like ivory, they can be carved into useful tools and utensils or decorative pieces of jewellery. The camel's hooves can be boiled to make glue that can be used to make arrows. Nothing went to waste. Nothing. The camel was involved some way in pretty much every aspect of life in the Arabian Peninsula. And later on, when we look at trade in a little bit more detail, the camel's vital role will be highlighted a bit more. So, for now, with justice served, let us return to those who rode on top of the camel. The two main features that shaped Arabia and its inhabitants and define their society and who they actually were are number one Arabia's severe lack of resources necessary for life particularly water which we know is the number one prerequisite for life to exist and number two its wild lawlessness we have already discussed the first element so now let's talk about the second however for us to do this I need you as a human living in the 21st century to mentally format your understanding of what is right and what is wrong I need you to forget everything you know about morals, what you consider to be moral or immoral, everything you know about justice, what you consider to be just or unjust, everything you know about ethics, what you consider to be ethical or unethical. Because when it comes to life or death, none of these matter. And no matter what, you as a human will choose the option that results in life. You will choose to survive regardless of whether the action necessary for survival may be immoral. You will choose to exist whatever the consequences may be. This perseverance, this will and determination to endure is what has made the human race so successful. Anyway, by now I'm assuming that from the last episode you have a decent picture of that land of Arabia and its geographical features and attributes. So, following that, we now have two reasons for why tribalism was the dominant social structure in Arabia. Number one is that there is always strength in numbers. This is the case anywhere, but it is especially true in a land as harsh as Arabia, where it is increasingly difficult for one single individual to realistically survive alone. Mainly because foraging, which is gathering fruits, berries, nuts, whatever it may be, a primary source of food for prehistoric man doesn't really exist in Arabia. So for hunter-gatherers, this left only hunting as a source of food. And hunting is much more difficult 
than foraging for an individual than it is for a group. Uh, if you're just one guy and foraging is available, uh, you can easily feed yourself by picking some berries off a bush or some nuts from a tree or whatever. But when it comes for hunting, it's much more difficult to hunt alone, especially when you look at the animals that were hunted in Arabia. For example, the oryx, uh, gazelles, ibexes, cheetahs, leopards. What these animals have in common is A, they're all very quick, elusive animals. So the best way they found to hunt them was to basically either surround the animal or to chase the animal towards your friends who will essentially ambush the animal. And these are both tactics that cannot be performed by one person alone. You need a group of people. And B, these animals are all quite big. They're not, you know, squirrels or rabbits. So it is going to be somewhat difficult to physically overpower them without getting yourself injured. And some injuries are as good as death because even if they are minor, if an injury is going to stop you from hunting, that means you cannot feed yourself. And if you cannot feed yourself, you're going to die of hunger. And even if you somehow manage to hunt one alone, um, you hunt a cheetah or a gazelle alone, and you come out unscathed, uninjured, you're all fine. Uh, another obstacle that you're presented with is that it's unlikely that you manage to eat the entire animal before it goes off because they're all relatively, relatively large animals. The second reason for why there is a tribal structure in Arabia is that it is a lawless land where we have basically established that everything goes. The only people that you can trust are naturally those closest to you, those of your own blood, your family. And a good definition that I found for what a tribe actually is in Arabia and how you should primarily think of uh, a tribe is that a tribe is simply an extended family unit. And going back to our previous example of the hunting, in this lawless land, what's to stop your hunting partners from hitting you over the head when the hunt is over and taking not only the full proceeds of the hunt, but everything that you own and everything that you carry on your person? In essence, there is nothing stopping them because, you know, there's no police. And this is why people you trust are very important. And who can you trust more than your own family, your own blood, the people you grew up with and have known all your life? Another consequence that stems from a land being lawless is that there is no central authority. There's no government. So when you can no longer physically provide for yourself, whatever the reason may be, uh, maybe injury, as we mentioned before, illness, old age, there's no one that will support you other than your immediate family, your siblings, your children. So it is very easy to see why the social structure in Arabia was built around the family group as the basic social unit and why there was such an emphasis and importance placed on kinship. The next thing that I wanted to talk about was the Arabs character and the Arabs personality traits. And if I had to describe the Arabs in one word, I would use the word proud. And that is a consequence of the fact that they lived in a land that epitomizes survival of the fittest. If you existed in Arabia, particularly Arabia Deserta, you existed because you were strong enough to exist. This was especially the case with the independent Arabs and the Arabian tribes who paid nobody for protection. Rather, they themselves were paid by others. And again, going back to that tribal attitude in society and the heavy emphasis on blood relations, 
we find that the Arabs were hugely proud of their lineages and their genealogies. So if they came from a line of men who had never been subjugated by anyone, then their lineage was of the best and they were basically the nobility, they were of noble blood. And for the Arabs this was all that mattered because if the tribe, the clan, the family was everything, you act to benefit your blood even if it is detrimental to you. And the Arabs were renowned by ancient writers, for example the Greeks, who in this case will be referring to the nomadic Arabs who lived in the Syrian desert, they were renowned for being fiercely independent, never bending their necks to anyone. These pastoral nomads of the Syrian desert prefer to scratch a living just above survival as free souls journeying throughout the desert wherever they pleased. Um, they prefer this rather than settling down and being taxed. Ugh. And for them this was no better than robbery as by paying taxes to a higher power or to anyone you were basically admitting that you were too weak to exist and you need to pay someone to remain alive. And that was a slight to their honour and a slight to their pride. And they would rather live a life journeying through sands, uh, barely existing, as long as they were free, as long as they were independent. And in classical literature, we see that they were admired for this by their contemporaries who were civilised people, uh, settled down, for example, the Greeks, as I mentioned before. And... If you recall the story about Alexander and his plans for the invasion of Arabia Felix from the last episode, we saw that Alexander the Great received emissaries and uh, delegations from everyone except the Arabs. And another characteristic of the Arabs that was caused by their environment was that they were an honourable people. Um, a man's word was everything, and to accuse a man of lying would be a huge insult, so huge that it could easily lead to violent conflict and war, as the person being accused uh, of lying, because of its pride, would have to protect his honour and the honour of his tribe. And the reason why lying was such a dishonourable thing to do, and such a taboo that was avoided uh, entirely, was that the Arabs were and illiterate people. So most agreements were made orally rather than being written down. Contracts were oral. So you were basically as good as your word and if you were known to be a liar or if you were suspected even slightly of being a liar because as you see today even in our societies where you are supposedly innocent until proven guilty if someone is accused of something and then it's plastered all over the newspapers you're going to assume subconsciously that that person is guilty, especially with images of someone in handcuffs. And uh, this was no different for the ancient Arabs. Because if you think about it for a second, if uh, if someone came to you and told you, um, I don't know, your your neighbor is a thief, so be careful. Even if the neighbor is completely innocent and has never robbed a thing in his life, you will treat him slightly differently or you treat him with suspicion you'll be more wary of trusting that person even if they've never never stole a thing in, or uh, never stole a thing in their lives because because someone's warned you you'll be foolish in a way to not take necessary precautions because what if the person is a thief so you can see what i mean by that you can see how i can relate it to the lion so if 
there was a shadow of a doubt that you're a liar or someone's called you out for being a liar, even if that's not a case, there's a possibility that no one will deal with you. And if you are known to be a liar, then absolutely nobody will deal with you because agreements were oral. And if you're going to lie and dishonor your agreements, then there's no point in dealing with you. And in some cases, being cut out and having people not deal with you is as good as death, even for those free nomads that were completely independent, as even they rely somewhat on settled people uh, economically. So they would rely on a settlement nearby or an oasis nearby to allow them access to water from their wells. So you can see how even that would be completely detrimental to their survival because if they don't have, have if they don't have access sorry to water then how are they gonna how are they gonna feed their animals how how are they gonna survive and also when i say that the arabs are an illiterate people please bear in mind that this is not a total statement rather the this was the general case so literacy did exist on some level uh, on the arabian peninsula but it was extremely rare and the Arabs in general were an illiterate, they were known as an illiterate people. There is very little. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Writing by Arabs before Islam. And all that is, fine, uh, all that is found sorry, is mostly inscriptions scratched into rocks, for example. So we don't have uh, things like manuscripts or books authored by Arabs before Islam because they were an illiterate people. Anyway, going back to the honor and, uh, and pride as the main characteristics of Arabs, this honor and pride had its negatives, however. Um, I came across a very interesting story about a powerful tribal leader uh, pre-Islam called Amr ibn Hind. You don't need to know this name, but um, his name was Amr ibn Hind. And it goes like this. One day, he asked his people, Men min nisa'il Arab ta'ba an takhdima ummi. Who amongst the women of the Arabs will refuse to serve my mother? And his people replied, well, no one. I don't, we don't think anyone would refuse to serve the mother of a man of your status. But if, if anyone were to refuse, it would be the mother of so-and-so. And he asked them why. And they replied, uh, she's a woman of a pure, noble lineage the daughter of a strong family within a commanding tribe, and her son is the leader of a powerful tribe also. So what this guy, Amr ibn Hind, did, out of his pride and out of his arrogance, really, to prove to these people that I am so strong and I am so powerful that no woman can dare refuse to serve my mother, my, my lovely mother, without dealing with the consequences of it. So he invited the the woman that the people thought would refuse to serve his mother and her son who as we mentioned was a powerful tribal leader in his own right and this guy Amr ibn Hind he insisted to his mom that she make the woman serve her so at some point during the invitation 
The two women are, are sitting down, eating or drinking or whatever. And Amr's mother asked the guest lady to pass her a plate. So she told her, pass me that plate or pass me that vessel. And the noble woman replied, get it yourself. You know, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a slave. I'm not a, a maiden. Get, get the plate yourself. So Amr's mother cried out to her son, your mother has been dishonored. Your mother has been dishonored. Come and regain my honor for me. So Amr ibn Hind, with his plan going, going how he wanted it, he roused up his fellow tribesmen to help him regain his honor. And he killed his guests. He killed the woman and he killed her son, uh, the tribal leader. And he sparked off a massive war. And a pointless war out of pride just to show that he was above everyone. And the Arab, due to this, was essentially extremely emotive and reactionary in his actions. And as we progress, you'll be able to pick up and recognize more of these common character and personality traits among the Arabs back then. The next bit of business is pre-Islamic Arabia's religion and the, the religion of the Arabs before Islam. And the 11th slash 12th century Persian scholar uh, Ash-Shahrastani, that was his name, provides us with uh, a great image of the beliefs of the pagan Arabs before Islam. And uh, he says the Arabs of pre-Islamic times can be divided into basically three various classes. And the first of these classes is essentially, essentially what we would describe today as an atheist. And he said this class denied that there was a, a, a creator, denied that there was a God that created everything, and they didn't believe that there was a resurrection and that there would be an afterlife after men die and that they would return to God. And these people asserted that nature possesses the power of bestowing life and that time destroys life, basically. And that's essentially what an atheist is. The second class believed in a creator and a creation being produced by him out of nothing, but they denied that there was a resurrection and a day of judgment. So they believed that we were put on this earth by some kind of higher being that created it and created us, but this uh, this higher being didn't involve himself in in the in the lives of men, and after we die, we we won't have a day of judgment or there is no heaven or hell, and. The final class, which was the vast majority of the Arabs living on the Arabian Peninsula, believed in a creator and a creation, but they denied God's prophets and worshipped false gods, whom they believed that in the next world they would become mediators between themselves and God. For these deities, they undertook pilgrimages, uh, they brought them offerings, they offered them sacrifices and approached them with uh, sacred rites and ceremonies. And Shahrastani concludes that this was the religion of the majority of the Arabs. Okay, so to expand on what he is saying here is that basically the pagan Arabs, just like other pagans, believed that there was one almighty god akin to Rome's Jupiter and the Greeks Zeus but this being although it was heads and shoulders above the other deities and uh, it was the supreme god it was surrounded by a pantheon of minor minor gods 
But the difference between the Arabs and uh, and the Greeks and the Romans is that when the Arabs worshipped these countless minor deities, they used them almost as middlemen between themselves and the main god. The same way when a group wants uh, a favor from uh, someone, say for example you're at work and uh, and you want you want the boss to let you leave half an hour early uh, as a group. So within within that group you'd send the worker who you think the boss likes the most because if if he's going to give that favor to anyone he's going to give it to the guy he likes the most for example i remember when i was younger me and my brother were only allowed to play on our games console for a set limited amount of time throughout the week usually only early mornings on the weekend so when we had friends over uh, at the time that video games were not permitted and our friends would ask uh, would ask if they could play with us uh, or play on a video on our video games me and my brother would basically tell them to to go and ask one of our parents themselves um that way they won't refuse because if we ask them they won't let us play so the pagan arabs would basically pray to god through these idols um with the sentiment uh, sentiment being uh, you know we're too low to pray directly to god so we we will pray to these uh to these idols and the idols will convey our message uh our message to them so whenever they want a better chance of getting whatever it was they wanted which was all the time uh, be it a blessing or, or of safety wealth or good luck they will pray to these idols um with the hope that the message would would get to god and the question now is why would they think that these idols these idols would give them uh, a better chance of their prayers being received rather than praying directly and there is a story of how one of these deities came to be uh, in that venerated position that I think explains it really well and it was said that there was a generous pious man who would basically give out food for free and the people that would see him donating this food and uh, giving food away would probably had thought what what a great guy you know dedicating his life to feeding the hungry surely someone like him is going to be well off in the afterlife and uh, blessed by god so when he died what they did was they went to the the spot where he used to always prepare the food that he donated to the poor and the needy and there was this rock that was described as being a square cubic rock that he sat near and he would grind barley to make the porridge that he gave out so they erected a shrine at this rock and they would go to it and basically pray to the dead man and basically ask him to you know uh, seeing as you're already there put in a good word for us so that when we die we find ourselves in a in a position just like yours however over time obviously the sentiment is that this intention becomes even more corrupted and eventually what we see is just the outright worship of idols and the arabs were passionately fond of their idols they named their children after them for example one of the prophet muhammad's uncles was named abdul uzza and that translates to slave of al uzza and al uzza was one of the idols worshipped in arabia and in mecca and there is an account from al kelbi who is an arab historian from his work the book of idols saying that every family in mecca had at home an idol which they worshiped and whenever one of them set out on a journey or they they left their homes 
His last act before leaving the house would be to touch the idol uh, in the hope of a safe journey and a safe day. And on their return, the first thing they would do was touch it again in gratitude and in thanks for the safe day and the safe return from their travels. So going back to that tribal structure that I'm always going to refer to, each household or each tent, if they were nomads, had an idol that they prayed to, that they touched uh, for blessing. And then each tribe would have a one step up almost idol for the whole tribe. And these idols, as you can imagine, were usually carved out of stone and rock and wood. But I found a few other ways that I thought would be interesting to mention. And these ways were a bit strange. And the first way they made uh, these idols would be to get a clump of soil and then milk an animal over it. And then this would allow them to shape it however they pleased. And then they would let the mixture of earth and milk harden. And the other way I found was from pressed dates. So if you press dates enough, the dates would eventually be a bit like Play-Doh. And they would mold this pressed dates into, into idols. And again, when that hardened out, you would have an idol. And uh, there are accounts of, um, of these pressed date idols being, uh, being made and then blessed by um, almost a shaman or... Um, uh, an Arabian equivalent of an oracle and then after it's blessed you would eat it and this was meant to fulfill whatever your wish was when you asked the oracle to bless it whether it be wealth or land or camels or extra children or whatever so that was the religion of the majority of the Arabs on the Arabian Peninsula and that's gonna bring this episode to a close this episode will have some footnotes after the, the theme music plays. So if you want to hang around and listen to those, then please do. Otherwise, thank you for listening. And I'll see you next Thursday where we'll be looking at trade in Arabia and a few final aspects of pre-Islamic Arabia, such as the Prophet's tribe, the Quraysh, and how they ended up in possession of the holy city of Mecca. Goodbye, and please make sure to contact me on the contact page on the History of Islam podcast blog. listening to the footnotes section so if you're still here then i'm going to assume that you're a dedicated listener so i'm going to ask a favor from you can you please go on to the contact uh, page on the history of islam podcast blog which is historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com and uh, give me some feedback on how you thought this episode went and uh, how you think the podcast is going so far okay so the first thing i want to address was an anonymous comment that was on uh, on the on the on the blog and this guy says well i don't know if it's a guy it could be a girl but anyway he says uh, first of all i love the podcast i've been waiting for something like this for years and i'm really glad you are embarking upon it thank you for putting in so much effort uh, thank you too for listening and he says my reason for commenting is that i feel that using biblical stories as historical evidence is wrong if there's literally no other source for the value of frankincense and myrrh, perhaps the Bible is better than nothing. But I'm sure you're aware um, that the events surrounding Jesus' birth are disputed, and so the wise men's gifts may never 
have been given. In my opinion, religious texts should be treated as examples of prevailing attitudes at the time of writing, but not as literal accounts. And I hope that will be your stance going onwards. Okay, so he's referring to um, the last episode where I was discussing the value of frankincense and myrrh as luxury goods in ancient times. And I use the example of the story of the three wise men who gave Jesus, baby Jesus, uh, gold, frankincense and myrrh to demonstrate to you guys um, the value of those two commodities. And the reason I use the story of the three wise men is because it's a nice little story that most people are familiar with and it takes one sentence rather than having to uh, give an example that I would have to explain. And I'd like to point out that even if that story in the Bible is a complete and utter fabrication, what we do know for sure is that the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which is where the three wise men's story is from, was written sometime in the late first century. So as you, sh- as you said, it shows that people in the first century AD considered frankincense and myrrh as valuable, uh, as valuable things because they're being ranked with something as valuable as gold. So um, I think that conveys the message that I was trying to give you guys and the image that I was trying to put in your mind. So I don't think there's anything wrong with using that particular, uh, that particular story from the Bible. And uh, as for his other question, well, he said, if there's literally no other source for the value of frankincense and mere, sorry. Um, well, the reply to that is that there's actually lots of source material on uh, the value of frankincense and myrrh and the trade of it in ancient times. Uh, Particularly, we have a very detailed account from Pliny the Elder, uh, who gives us um, specific specific prices for frankincense and myrrh and how it got to uh, how it got to the the Middle East and the Mediterranean from Arabia Felix. And he even goes as far as to tell us how many stops the caravans made and how much money they paid um, at every stop for the right to uh, use water and food and uh, and uh, things for their animals, uh, their camels uh, specifically. So there is a lot of source material. So if um, if you're interested in reading it, um, I'll try and put something on the episode guide for those of you that want to know a bit more about the trade of frankincense and myrrh and its value specifically in the ancient age but next episode we will be talking about trade in a bit more detail um however i don't think uh, incense is going to be mentioned specifically so I'll, I'll i'll put something in the episode guide for those of you that want to see the extra source material so if any of you had any queries just like this person did then go ahead and go to the blog and send me a message on the contact page and I will address it in the footnotes just like I have now. Uh, if you have any encouraging uh, any encouraging messages or any feedback, then please do go ahead and send me those messages because interaction at the end of the day is what makes this worth it. And uh, uh, it allows me to feel that there are actually listeners engaging and uh, enjoying the podcast and I'm not making it for, for no reason. This reminds me, someone asked... Um, for a list of the sources that I'm using and uh, all the books and stuff that I've read. And as I mentioned on the introduction episode, as we get a bit deeper into the podcast, I'm going to 
make a bibliography page on the blog. I'm just trying to get that sorted out now. So that will have a list of the books and the sources I've used and uh, the books I recommend for those of you who are interested in further reading uh, for you to read. And uh, two more things before I wrap this up. Uh, the first thing is, uh, if you face any technical issues whatsoever, please let me know so I can fix them ASAP because I was... Uh, recently told that the player on the blog doesn't work on uh, Mozilla Firefox for some reason and uh, I haven't found a way to fix this so I've put a little note on the on the blog saying this uh, website is best viewed with Google Chrome because if you use Google Chrome as a browser uh, then the audio player works fine and it allows you to seek forward and uh, fast forward and go back uh, however you please but with Mozilla Firefox for some reason it doesn't it doesn't let you do that so I have, I have no idea how to fix that I spent some time researching but it seems to be a Firefox issue so you can easily avoid it by using uh, Chrome and finally what I wanted to say was um, oh yeah um, I've been thinking about doing a uh, a Q&A episode just for pre-Islamic Arabia because there might be something that you guys are wondering about or a specific query or uh, something that you want me to expand uh, a bit more on that can't really be answered answered in one question, sorry. So if that is something you want, a, a pre-Islamic Arabia Q&A episode, that would be the fourth episode. So there's going to be one more episode for pre-Islamic Arabia uh, part three and then the Q&A for pre-Islamic Arabia um, after that and then we enter the life of the Prophet Muhammad so if you want a Q&A episode for pre-Islamic Arabia then do let me know on the contact page on the blog and start sending me your questions so I can uh, set out an episode to answer those questions with the necessary amount of detail again thank you for listening and uh, I'll see you next Thursday I look forward to reading your messages Goodbye.